0: It's good to be here with you this morning. Thanks for coming out. Good to have all the visitors. And I would ask you this morning, if you would, to do something different, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we'll be going through the text, other uh, texts that are not found in uh, the context of Nehemiah 1 will be uh, put up on the screen for you. Of course, you are welcome to turn there as well. Once you find your place, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. God, again, we thank you that we can come before you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one that's so powerful you spoke, and it was. Everything created by you, both physical and spiritual. For you are a great God. God, we ask that you speak to our hearts this morning. Not just so that we can leave here with more knowledge, but that we may know you better. That you would work in our hearts. And if there's anybody here that does not know you or is not known by you, God, that they might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, part 2. So we're continuing what we started last week, but if you weren't here, uh, you will have no trouble following along, I'm sure. Last week we were reminded that Nehemiah, when he heard that Jerusalem lay unprotected, no walls, no city gates, he grieved. And we saw that in verse 4. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response to his grief was that he turned to God. He looked to God in prayer. He fasted and he prayed. And he exalted God. He confessed his own sins and the sins of his people. But he was also seeking God. As we go through this prayer, we'll see this. He was seeking God to give him favor before the king. Now, we can understand why he prayed. That should be the natural thing that happens when we grieve, when we're burdened about something. That should be the response of every believer in a continuation of life, in a daily part of our lives, but also, and especially when we're grieved. There's a verse that had an impact on me a number of years ago, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It literally reads, stop being anxious. It's assuming that they were already anxious. And in the context, we see that they were. But he says, stop being anxious But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, turn to the Lord. Look to Him. Take your burdens to Him. Take your grief to Him. And then that word guard. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a military term. It was used... In military writings, and that word guard means to build a fort around. God has promised protection for those of us that will turn to the Lord with our grief and our burdens and our anxiety and give it to him. I remember this is almost a funny story because it's so much like It's certainly so much like me. But when I was in university at Liberty, I had one semester in which I was working 40 hours a week. I was taking 21 credit hours. I had a wife and a five-year-old daughter named Jessica. I was doing a rest home ministry and going to church. I know it was foolish. I took on way too much, but I was trying to get finished. I wanted to get, I was tired of school. I had been in school for five and a half years as a married man and most of that time with actually almost all of it with a daughter and I was burned out and I went to the rest home one day and I was speaking on this verse in Philippians these two verses in Philippians and I remember walking out and getting in our car we put Jessica in the back seat, and I looked over at Vanessa and I said you know what I just told those people to stop being anxious And turn it over to the Lord. And I'm just about as anxious as anybody could ever get. And that was the truth. And I went home. And I went to my study. And I shut my door. And I turned it over to God. And I walked out of that study that day. Feeling like I was walking on air. Because I gave it to him. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing here. He doesn't just wallow in his grief. He turns it over to God. He cries out to the Lord. We're not created to handle everything on our own. We are created as dependent creatures. We're to be dependent upon him. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. And that's what we need to do. It's the very same principle we find in Philippians chapter 4. Now, we can understand Nehemiah praying. That's what should naturally happen to those of us as believers. But he also fasted. Why did he fast? Well, in the scriptures, as you go through the word of God, fasting is associated with prayer. Fasting and prayer basically went hand in hand in many respects, especially when prayer was initiated due to grieving Like we see here in Nehemiah chapter 1, temptation, Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted, seeking God's protection, Ezra chapter 8. When we come to repentance, God brings us to repentance, Jonah chapter 3, Joel chapter 2, in preparation to go before a king, Esther chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 1 again. During a time of intimate communion with or worship of God. Exodus chapter 34, Luke chapter 2. When facing reproach, persecution, ridicule, Psalm 69. When praying for the sick, David prayed for his sick enemies and he fasted, Psalm 25. When appointing an elder, Acts 13 and Acts 14 in God's word fasting and understand this fasting is not dieting and it's not for health reasons. It certainly has some health benefits, but that's not the intent of fasting in the word of God. It's not intended to punish the body, even though it could be used to do that when done wrongly. It's not an attempt to change, change God's mind or manipulate God's will. That's not the point of fasting. And it's not an effort to, a spirit, to appear more spiritual before others. That's not fasting. The purpose of fasting is to take our focus off this physical reality and to focus on the spiritual. More precisely, to turn our attention from the things of the world to an intimate time of communion, communion with Christ himself. Fasting demonstrates a dependence upon God. Fasting also comes naturally. You know when you're grieving and you're really burdened? It's hard to eat, isn't it? It's almost a natural thing in many respects. Because we're so burdened, we can't think about food. We lose our appetites when we're grieved. Now, as we continue in Nehemiah chapter 1, notice Nehemiah knew God. And he believed his word. We touched on this last week. His life and his thinking and his writing, his prayer here, is based upon the word of God and God's faithfulness to keep his word. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah writes, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice how Nehemiah begins his prayer. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He begins his prayer with exalting God, praising him and declaring his greatness. Nehemiah knew God. He knew who God is, and he turns to God in prayer, exalting God in all his greatness. And then he turns to God's faithfulness in his prayer. He refers to God as one who preserves or keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love God and keep his commandments. Nehemiah knew that God is faithful, that God always keeps his promises, always. No matter how bad the circumstances may appear that we face in life, God will ultimately and perfectly keep his word. He always does. It doesn't look like, it doesn't matter how impossible it may seem, God will keep his word. Folks, and we're living in the new covenant. We're living at the time of Christ in which God changes the heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Our sins are actually and permanently taken away. A time when God's promises are a reality. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians to those in Corinth. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. They find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter amen. Amen. To God for his glory. Amen. That's the word firm, trustworthy, truly. Or as the King James puts it, verily, verily. It's truly, it's sure, it's trustworthy. That's why we say trustworthy to God. Because he is trustworthy. Thus far, Nehemiah's time with the Lord is a time of worship. And that's the way prayer should begin. Now Nehemiah then graciously pleads for God to listen confessing his sin and the sinfulness of his people. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So although Nehemiah is confessing their sins, as we talked about last week, he is seeking grace. He's looking to God's grace rather than God's continual judgment for their sin. He is graciously asking God to give attention to his request. He's not demanding anything from God, but he's graciously, humbly asking God for God's help. He believes God is sovereign and he does not attempt to usurp his authority over God's. God is demonstrating his, excuse me, Nehemiah is demonstrating his dependence upon God and confessing the sins of his people. He says we, he says I, I have sinned and my people and my father's house, I should say. Today, we are no different. Those of us who are truly children of God need to be quick to confess our sins before a holy God. Being honest before God. We are saints who occasionally sin. At least that's the way it should be. We have been declared saints before him, but we occasionally sin. We still have the sin nature. John said this in 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. the next verse if we confess our sins he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess that's continual it's the present tense if we continually because it's not just talking about the time in particular he's writing to my little children He's not talking about the time that we come to know Christ. He's talking it to us as believers. We need to have that continual confession when we fail, bringing it before God. It's present, continual, habitual action. But he goes on to write in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the intent. And or but, it can be translated, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is one that comes along close beside of us to help us. That's an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. It's his righteousness that makes us righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Christ is the propitiation. He's the satisfying sacrifice, the mercy seat, as it were. He satisfied God's demand for sin. He took our place. He bore our sins. And it's not just for the sins of the Jewish people, as being written about here. It's for the sins of the whole world. Every people, God has promised that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be born again. Not for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, do you get the point of this? We as believers have no reason to feel self-righteous whatsoever. For we have no righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before God. We're no better than any unconverted sinner. Not at all. Our righteousness, my righteousness, is an alien righteousness, it comes from an outside source. It comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only did he bear my sin on the cross of Calvary, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He fully met the requirements of God's law. And now in Christ, his righteousness is placed upon me and upon you. So that when God looks at me, he sees me as righteous. Not because of me, but because of Christ. Because he, is our propitiation. He took our sins and he gives us his righteousness. We call it the great exchange. So we have no reason whatsoever to feel like that we are better than anybody else. We have a reason to fall before our faces, before God, the one that is gracious and merciful, that has given us salvation in Jesus Christ. Next, notice that Nehemiah looks to God's faithful promise to return them from exile. See, he still, we see it all through the prayer. He believes God keeps his word. Nehemiah chapter one, verse eight and nine. Remember the word which I commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Back to Jerusalem. Back to the promised land. Nehemiah knew God's promises. He knew the word of God. Just like Daniel. Remember Daniel? You know, Daniel was taken in 606 from... Judah from Jerusalem into captivity and lived basically his whole life in Babylon. He was, a, he was a teenager when he was taken. And then he lived 70 years, but when he came up to the end of the 70 years, he knew the word of God as well, just like Nehemiah, and he knew it was only 70 years that they would be in exile. He knew something was about to happen. Listen to the words of Daniel Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the year, in the first year of his reign, speaking of King Darius, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the number of years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He knew because he knew the word of God. And he believed the word of God. He knew that God's word never returns void. He knew that God never breaks his promises. Daniel was taken into captivity in 606. And 70 years later, that's when God brought back the primary part of those exiles back to Jerusalem. Now look at verse 10. Nehemiah 1.10. Speaking of these descendants... Of Israel, in particular Judah and Benjamin. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and your strong hand. These people, people were the chosen servants of the Most High God. They had a history with God's hand upon them, and Nehemiah knew all about it. God had redeemed them from the bondage of the Egyptians through those plagues and then parting the Red Sea, God had redeemed them. That was their history, or a part of their history. The hand of God working through a sinful people. Because God's faithful even when we're not. God is always faithful. There was no question in Nehemiah's mind that God always keeps his promises. No matter how much the people of God might fail, God keeps his promises. He knew that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, that nothing is too hard for God. It doesn't matter what the situation looks like, God is faithful. It doesn't matter about the situation that you face as an individual or that you face in your family or that we might face in the church. God is greater. He's omnipotent and folks, his promises will be fulfilled and they will be fulfilled perfectly. That's the God that we serve this morning. Finally, Nehemiah gets to his ultimate request in verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Notice Nehemiah's request was not for his own desire or purpose. He was God's servant who delights to revere God's name. That was the intent of his heart, to glorify God, to revere his name, to exalt him. He was seeking seeking compassion before King Artaxerxes. He was the king's cupbearer. He had a prominent position. He had a responsible position. The life of the king was in his hands. He was a trusted man by the king. But he had to go before the king, and you just didn't do that in that day. Even as we've seen with Esther, even if you were the wife, you could be killed for just going before the king unless you had been requested by the king. Nehemiah goes before God, and he seeks God's face because he had to go and face the king. Nehemiah sought the Lord, but it was for the purpose of God's kingdom. His burden was for Jerusalem. His burden was to see the people protected in the city there with walls, structure, gates, because they were facing persecution, those that had returned a number of years prior. So he wasn't seeking his own personal benefit or any position. He was seeking to make his request to the king. Sadly today, there's many, in particular in the charismatic movement, at least some elements that have redefined prayer. It's become about getting what you want. They give four steps to successful prayer. Know what you want. Believe and you will receive it. Visualize its arrival and speak it into existence. Does that sound like biblical prayer to you? I don't think so. Because in essence... You take the place of God in deciding what's best rather than trusting God. You're demanding something from God. It's called the law of attraction. You speak faith words that brings your desires into existence. Their leaders have made statements like this. When you pray in this manner, you shift the universe. I believe God shifts the universe. They've said this, God can't do anything until you push this button. Folks, my God does what he chooses to do, and his choices are right. Prayer is not a means to get our wills accomplished. We are to pray for God's will. These false teachers are not encouraging prayer as a means to seek holiness, righteousness, purity, humility, or brokenness. Rather, they encourage their followers to seek material things like health, wealth, success, prosperity, or privilege. Even pagans believe that they are at the mercy of their deities. What kind of religion is this? Listen to the words of James. James writes, you ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? There ever, therefore, excuse me. whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This prayer tells us three things. Selfish prayer results in our prayers not being answered. Why would God answer selfish prayers when we're usurping our authority over God by demanding what we think is best or what we want? Those who attempt to misuse prayer are adulteresses. That's what it is. And those who attempt to misuse prayer make themselves enemies of God. I don't know about you, but I believe that God is the one that's omniscient. He's the one that's all-knowing. He knows what's best and he wants what's best in the life of every believer or the lives of every believer. The Lord Jesus gave us a model for prayer. Pray then in this way, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my will. My will is fallible, selfish, and can be wicked. But God is God. And he's so trustworthy. You can trust him. Many years ago, I started thinking about prayer, the prayer list in churches that we had attended. And I noticed that they were exclusively, almost always, made up of requests for the sick and bereaved. Now, understand, it's totally biblical to pray for sick and bereaved. But something was missing. I noticed that there were rarely any requests for spiritual things. Things that really should take precedence in our hearts as believers. You know, when we read prayers in the Word of God, we find something very different than we commonly see in our churches today. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That God would shine light, not on their minds, but on their hearts. So that they would know, there's a purpose for this, so that they would know what is the hope of his calling. What is the riches of his inheritance? And what is his greatness towards us who believe? the greatness of his power towards us who believe. That's how we need to pray.
1: In Romans chapter
0: 15, Paul prayed for the Roman believers. May God give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be our heart's desires. That's how we should be praying as believers today. That. Is biblical, And don't misunderstand, we need to pray for the sick and the bereaved and for all sorts of physical needs. But it must be balanced with praying for the things that are the most important, the spiritual. In light of Nehemiah's prayer to the Lord, what are the implications for you and I? You know, sometimes I think that we often talk about application, but in one sense, I believe it's the Spirit that does the application. But we should do implication. But implication is also sometimes called application. So here's some questions for us this morning. How much do we really know the Word of God? Nehemiah knew God's Word. He lived in a day. Where people knew, the Jewish people, they knew the word of God. They knew the scriptures. We're living in a day, it's so easy, even for us believers, to get distracted by things that don't really matter. Things that might not be wrong in and of themselves, but when they take priority and they consume our lives, they become wrong. Because they distract us from what really matters. You know, this concept of a rabbi and a disciple came from predominantly from northern Galilee. It was the least most prominent there, and that's really the model that Jesus used with his disciples. And it's in that area, that tri-village area of northern Galilee, where Jesus got almost all of his disciples. They didn't come from the centers of education and. Scholarship and worldliness, they came from little villages where certain things were prominent. The city of Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin, that's where they mostly came from. And a disciple in Jesus' day was not a student that wanted to know what the rabbi knew. He did want to know that, but that wasn't the primary thing. A disciple was one that wanted to be just like his rabbi. Ultimately, the young man would go to a rabbi. He would find a rabbi that he had been watching for years, and he would ask, can I follow you? And most of the time they were rejected because the rabbi was looking for someone that was totally committed to being a disciple with no distractions. It's interesting The disciples did not come to Christ and say, can I follow you? He went to them and said, come, follow me. That's where the model came from, even though it was an alteration of that model. So these disciples wanted to be just like the rabbi. So we're living in small villages in northern Galilee, these people, and they went to the synagogue for their teaching. But young boys and girls also went to the synagogue, and the rabbi taught them schooling. From 5 to 12 years old, kids went to learn to read and write and do math, but predominantly they learned the Word of God. Do you know when a kid graduated from what's called Beth Zephyr at age 12? Most of these kids, boys and girls, could quote the entire Torah, the Pentateuch. word for over 130,000 Hebrew words. They could quote it word for word. You could take a section and quote it, and they could tell you where it came from in the canon. That's how much they knew. And then most kids at 12 went back, you know, girls started getting ready to become mothers, and sons started preparing and learning the family business to be a man. To some degree, they were considered a man at 12 years of age. They had tremendous responsibility But those that desired to really know the Word of God in that culture, and maybe one day become a rabbi, would go on to a secondary school, also at the synagogue, taught by the rabbi, called Beth Madrash. And many of these kids would memorize the whole Old Testament. Word for word in the Hebrew. And it wasn't just about getting knowledge. And don't, don't misunderstand. These people didn't automatically become followers of Christ when Christ came on the scene. But it wasn't about getting knowledge. It was, like, it was about being like their rabbi. And I wonder. We live in a world of distractions today. If people, many of whom, did not really have faith in God, were that committed to learning the Word of God, can we not learn some of the Word of God? Not just for the sake of knowing it or quoting it, but that we might live it. That we might know the God of the Word with all our hearts. The psalmist proclaim in Psalm chapter 1, How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season and its leaf. doesn't wither. Whatever He does, He prospers. He flourishes. We need to delight in the very Word of God. I'm not setting up some kind of standard and say you got to memorize. I mean, these were little kids that could memorize. I can't even hardly memorize anymore the way I used to. It gets harder the older that you get, but oh, that we would know the Word of God. Not for the sake of having knowledge, but to know the God of the word. That's what we need to do. A second question, and we're winding down here. How much do you trust God to fulfill his promises? Nehemiah believed God. He trusted him. You heard one promise last week. Matthew 16 said to Peter, You are Peter, Petras, pebble. And on this rock, Petra, foundation, boulder. You are little pebble, but on this foundation, boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail or overpower it. Prevail against it. So no matter, again, how difficult the situation looks, God will build his church. Don't give up on the church of the firstborn. The Church of Christ. Don't even give up on your family here at Cornerstone. Let me encourage you. If something's not right, be a part of the fix, the solution. If it's not being done, offer to do it. Do not give up. You know what's great? God uses imperfect people to do his perfect will. It's so awesome. Because it's not about us being perfect or even meeting or having all the credentials every time. Not perfectly. It's about God and what he chooses to do through us. Isn't that amazing? That God would use imperfect people like you and me. That's humbling to me that God would use me. I know I don't deserve it. I know how I felt God in my life, but I know the God that I serve, and I hope you do today. Do we really think God's promise to build his church applies to every other local church except Cornerstone? It does not. It applies to us. Jesus also promised to return for His church. It's about believing the promises of God, like Nehemiah did. Jesus said, "For I will go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also." Titus wrote, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord, or of our great. Zelios, Zelios, I can't. And then John. First John chapter 3 we are children of God and it's not appeared as yet what we will be we know that when he appears we will be like him glorified because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure you want to be holy before God and be used of God Look to Christ. Look to that blessed hope. He's coming again. He will keep his promise. It doesn't matter how the world looks and how the world falls apart before our eyes. God's promises. You know, it's so amazing. Every prophecy that should be fulfilled in history has been fulfilled perfectly. Every single one. And you look back and read these and you don't know the history and how it was fulfilled. And you think, how in the world could that ever happen? I, love, I mean, I wish I had time to show you some of these. They're amazing. It's like, it, it's impossible that it happened because God keeps his word. So it doesn't matter how difficult things may look. It doesn't matter how the church may appear. The, the church in general today, made up of, you know, the visible church, believers and unbelievers, just like the nation of Israel, Israel, the elect and the unelect, those who believe God and those who did not doesn't matter how it looks god is faithful and god will keep his word number three are you fasting and praying for the kingdom of god the church nehemiah fasted and prayed for the kingdom of god in judah we need to pray for our church at cornerstone god wants to use imperfect people like you and me and we need to pray biblically for one another not just for physical needs Pray for spiritual needs of one another. We need it. I need it. And I encourage you to do that. Is your fourthly is your heart's supreme desire to glorify God in everything you do, say and think. That should be our heart's desire. First Corinthians ten thirty one whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's all about Him. It's all about revering His name. Exalting him, praising him, pointing him out to a lost and dying world as well. And then finally, are you the man or woman, boy or girl, that has a heart's desire to be used of God? Is that your heart, to really be used of him? I've done a lot of counseling over the years. And here's something I've noticed. When I do uh, relationship or um, marital counseling, it's often a situation where one spouse wants the other one fixed. But you know what I've noticed? If just one person will become the man or God, a man or woman that God wants them to be, it often affects the other spouse. And let's just pick on us Husbands. If we would love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Most of the time, they're not going to have a problem submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. Do we love our wives as Christ loved the church? Nehemiah was a man of God. God can use anybody. But as believers, we need to be men and women of God totally committed to Him, stop worrying about everybody else and become the man or woman, the boy or the girl, that God wants you to be. A man or woman of integrity, holiness, purity, humility, sacrifice, and serve God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's what God's called us to do. Let's pray.